Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles. And I'm Carrie Law. Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions facing the world today. Telecommuting, quarantines, doom scrolling, upperware, or a curation of one Zoom background have all become part of our new remote working reality. The pandemic has accelerated the technological transformation. And now it's estimated that in the next five years, close to 85 million jobs may be displaced by algorithms, artificial intelligence, and robotics. So our dilemma today, what does the COVID-19 transformation mean for our work? Is the future of work already here? What is a bigger threat to our future, COVID-19 or robots? What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a pilot. I want to be an air hostess. Such a sweet clip from the BBC. And although a pilot and an air hostess seem to be pretty brave choices in the current environment, Jonathan, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I'm very sorry to say I wanted to be a BBC war correspondent, which is what I eventually became in my previous life before joining the EBRD. So uh, maybe some things in, you know, in your youth, uh, you know, you are able to do. But I think actually it was easier as a kid to say I want to be that because things didn't move so fast. So the odds are when I was young, you know, those jobs were still around when I was a, a late teenager or in my 20s. Well, you, gosh, you really hit the mark. I missed the mark wildly. Um, like so many young people, I really wanted to be a doctor. I had a, um, a grandfather who was a family physician. And so he had this small practice. And I used to love how, how much respect he had in the community and how he used to help people. I even liked the white jacket he wore. Um, and a brave, you know, a brave profession back then, but even more brave now, given what's happening. And I think the world will still need doctors. Uh, in 2019, we recorded our first conversation on the future of work. We discussed how robots would come and take away our jobs. But then, of course, along came COVID-19 and changed everything we could have predicted. So, Jonathan, if you had to make a guess, what are a few of the jobs that you think will totally disappear and be replaced by robots and automation? You know, I think I would look at some of the biggest areas of change. If we think over the last uh, few months, how quickly some areas have moved. Uh, banking, for example, I wouldn't necessarily want to be a bank teller in a branch of a retail bank, because I think retail banking seems to have changed amazingly. You know, almost everybody is going to be doing their banking online. We're going to see branch closure after branch closure. We're already seeing that. I think that's one area where pretty much, you know, those jobs are, are going to disappear. Uh, you know, I, I think some other jobs you can see, you know, if we have fewer times in offices, for example, with more hybrid working, are we going to need as many uh, people in secretarial and administrative roles in future, because there'll be fewer people to administer in offices. So I can see, you know, those are areas where we'll see, we'll see things. And I, I think it's about skills, isn't it? You know, that one of the great difficulties are going to be for people who don't have as many options because they don't have the educational background, for example. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And you hit the nail on the head. You guessed a few of them. So according to the career advice website called careeraddict.com, a couple of the top ones are travel agent, cashier, as you guessed, uh, sports referee, mail carrier. But then there are some interesting ones like a fast food cook. Um, and there's already a chain called Cali Burger, which is using these automated workforce AI-driven burger flipping kitchen assistants. So the future is already here for the fast food industry. 
Um, but then we've also seen some really interesting uses of robots during the pandemic. So our client in Tunisia, for example, called Innova Robotics, they introduced these mini patrolling robots that were enforcing the lockdown in the country, which I personally think would be terrifying seeing rolling down the street. And, you know, I guess if you're a low skilled worker, any type of robot might actually be quite frightening. Um, and Mackenzie put out this really interesting report on the future of work that showed that the lower skilled jobs might even be more at risk post pandemic than before. So definitely something that people are, are talking about. Podcast presenter as well will probably be done away with by AI, I should imagine. Um, but there are many opportunities, of course, brought about by technological innovation you know, in areas it's even very difficult to imagine right now. It is all about learning new skills. I'm sure that's going to be very important going forward. Uh, for instance, uh, you could probably requalify to be a, a COVID-19 contact tracer. Seems to be a big demand for that. So you could be a cloud architect or a chief listening officer. What is a chief listening officer? Because I feel like that would be the perfect job switch for you and I. <laughs> I think you have to listen to the organization and to the world. I think uh, it's probably very well suited. It's a very Californian uh, approach to things, <laughs> I suspect, uh, which has not quite made it to the United Kingdom yet. According to the uh, World Economic Forum Jobs Report 2020, one of the trends they see coming on strongly is automation in tandem with the COVID-19 <laughs> recession. And it's creating a double disruption scenario, they say, for workers. Technological ad adoption by companies will transform tasks, jobs and skills by 2025. Time spent on current tasks at work by humans and machines will become equal. They also think that 97 million new roles may emerge as the new division of labor between humans, machines and algorithms appear. So it sounds like there are plenty of opportunities too. And uh, to help us work out what the future of work really holds, we've invited back Jason Furman, the Etna Professor of uh, the Practice of Economic Policy, jointly at uh, Harvard Kennedy School and the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He's also a non-resident uh, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and we welcome Beata Ayavochik, our Chief Economist and Professor of Economics at University of Oxford. Uh, Jason and Beata, welcome. Kerry, why don't you ask the first question? So Jason, wonderful to have you again, Beata, a pleasure as always. Um, so your 30 seconds. Jason, we'll start with you. Is the future of work already here? The future of work has been here one year in closer to the future every year forever. Um, we have always had automation. We have always had machines replacing people. And yet we've always had new jobs for people and richer people. So, you know, the last year, maybe we moved a bit more than one year um, into the future of the automation of work. Maybe we move five years um, into it, which might mean we'll only move um, half a year into the future of work each year for the next five and end up in exactly the same future we were going to be in before. Excellent. Beata, do you agree with Jason? What's your 30 seconds? Absolutely. Uh, the future of work is about adjusting to constant structural and technological change. So if you agree with this definition, it's already here. Beata, when we chatted on this topic, uh, what, not that long ago now, a year, year and a half ago, you know, I remember you said uh, remote working is going to change all of our economies, all of our lives anyway. That was even before COVID-19. So what still stands, do you think, in what you said then and what's changed? Well, the point that still stands is that the workplace has been transformed. Working from home is here to stay in the form of a hybrid workplace. A few days at home, a few days in the office. 
And this means that firms will not have to limit themselves to workers located in the same city or even the same country. So we are going to see emergence of virtual cross-border commuting. Now the journey is still out on what will happen to city centers as firms scale down their office space, particularly in mid-sized mid cities. Now, many of EBRD countries have been facing the challenge of declining cities. And the question is, will these cities rebound by attracting virtual commuters to their less expensive property markets, or will they decline further? And to a large extent, it will depend on how well the cities are run and what amenities they can offer. I can see mid-sized cities running advertisement campaigns. Come here, we are a great place to live. And I think that EBRD Green Cities program can certainly help them. Actually, just very quickly, I mean, we've already seen, haven't we, some very unusual places welcoming uh, digital nomads, as they call them. You know, I've seen adverts for Caribbean countries, all sorts of places saying, come here, don't worry about taxation. Uh, we're not going to tax you, but feel free to work here remotely. So we're seeing that sort of, you know, not from cities, although we probably will see cities, but we're seeing it from small countries as well. Sounds pretty nice to work from the beach. Uh, I, I will say so myself. Jason, one of my favorite lines in the last podcast you were on with us, you said that you didn't believe in technological predeterminism. And I loved that. No, I think in some ways, maybe we should be worried more because I don't believe in technological determinism. Mm. If you think the robots are coming to take all our jobs, <laughs> then you should just <laughs> relax and hate it. Um, there's, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> Um, what I'm saying is, you know, it's not about the robots. The future is about us. Hands. And so I agree with you that it's probably not about the robots. But what has COVID-19 taught us about us? And do you have any key lessons for us? Yeah, it's certainly taught us that we can get more done remotely than we could do before. So the last time I did this podcast, I flew all the way to London came into the studio so I could look you in the eyes and do the podcast. Might've had one or two other reasons to come to London at the time and tack this on, but you know, let's, let's not be impolite. I came all the way there to do it face-to-face -face, uh, to be with you. Um, now I'm watching you on a Zoom screen and your listeners will just hear um, the audio. I think when this is all done, I'm gonna go to London just as often as I went to London before COVID. But I'm also going to do more things like this over Zoom. And so I'm going to just end up doing more stuff. Now, I won't have more time in the day. So what I cut out, um, I'm not quite sure and haven't figured that out yet. And that's a little bit like um, when spreadsheets came along. It didn't mean we had fewer accountants because the spreadsheets could add all the numbers. It meant they did a lot more um, than just adding the numbers. So I think this becomes a part of our repertoire expands what we do. For some people replaces it, um, for other people doesn't at all. I would say the main lesson my students have taken away from my teaching them on Zoom is that you know it's less bad to be in person with me than to be on Zoom with me. <laughs> just, just very quickly, Jason, picking up on that. So does that mean, bearing in mind we all may be doing more uh, with our limited time, does that mean a productivity boost for society, for economies? I think so. I think so. I mean, everything that allows, I mean, certainly at the upper end, anything that allows, you know, 
a digital artist to record themselves and play for the whole world rather than just be listened to in the one auditorium that they're singing that day um, expands the reach of the most productive people. So I think that's part of what we're gonna see. Um, what does it mean for everyone? Well, some people with um, you know, lower levels of productivity, lower levels of skill attainment are doing jobs that can be more easily automated by machines, but is more difficult to do them through you know, telepresence and the like. So I don't think it's Zoom that is the threat to you know, truck drivers. Um, it's you know, automated vehicles that's the threat. And they're the threat I think right now is to long haul trucking. Uh, mm. not, to, not to trucking within cities, for example. Yeah. So Jason, building on that, if behaviors aren't gonna really change that much and we're just gonna be doing more, as, as you say, what happens to this notion that there'll be less of a carbon footprint due to this reduction of travel? Is that just kind of not really gonna to come to fruition or do you think there will be a meaningful reduction of carbon emissions from limited travel and replacing some of these meetings with Zoom, for example? I think there will be I think there will be more international meetings happening, virtual and in-person than before, because the cost of having an international meeting has gone down. So the total number will go up. What happens to the number in person? I, you know, maybe that goes down a little bit, but, you know, I think with people having, uh, but, but I think there's still just so many powerful things that want to bring people together that the thing I'm more confident is more international meetings in total and the sign of what happens to in-person, I'm much less sure about. Mm, not sure whether that's a good or bad thing. Uh, let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter, of course, at ebrd. Today's dilemma, which we're talking about right now, what does the COVID-19 transformation mean for our work? Is the future of work already here? What is a bigger threat to our future, COVID-19 or robots? Beata, you've talked a lot about globalization of the workforce, which would be quite advantageous, advantageous for our region. Can it really accelerate the speed of the economies across the EBRD regions? I think it can. I think our regions tend to gain from exports of services through virtual cross-border commuting. And I think that these virtual commuters will be exposed to new ideas, new ways of doing things, and they will bring them back to their compatriots. And digitalization in EBRD regions is accelerating as we speak. Three quarters of people in the UK have purchased something online, half of population in Poland. But in places such as Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, these figures are in single digits. And yet surveys tell us that even in those last three countries I mentioned, small and mid-sized firms have been moving at least some of their sales online during the pandemic. In our regions, online sales are limited by the lack of trust. People worry that if they pay online, they will never see the goods ordered. So payments on delivery are widely used, even though they are not that convenient. So the pandemic is not only moving sales to the internet, 
It's also allowing firms to build up a reputation for reliability, which will further drive online sales and digitalization. But I mean, there are lots of challenges in all of this, aren't there, Beata? I mean, I, I'm thinking about many friends who are telling me even now that they have been working in other countries, that, but they're forced to come back by their employers to their, their employers to their home base because of taxation issues, for example. Because, you know, how do you treat someone who technically is employed in one country but has become a nomad in another country? So, so there are many things to be overcome. Indeed. If we want to facilitate this remote work, this virtual cross-border commuting, I think we need to think about harmonizing data protection regimes so that remote workers can work with our data in their country. I think we need to think about facilitating business travel. So having some special arrangements for these low frequency cross-border commutings. And taxation is absolutely not trivial. Many countries, think about the UK and Ireland, already have taxation agreements for cross-border commuters. But these agreements may need to be updated or adjusted to suit virtual commuters. And also such agreements typically exist between neighboring countries, countries that share a physical border. Now, countries that do not share a border may need to sign such agreements. And of course, things get much more complicated with a cross-border gig economy but that's the same issue governments face with their domestic gig economy. So it works all right in the European Union because it's a bit like the single market, isn't it? But what do you do with you know, many other parts of the world where they're not used to such things? It requires governments to pool their sovereignty, give up their sovereignty and, and give away a bit of power for the common good. Do you see that happening? It may happen because both countries stand to gain. The importers of services stand to gain from cheaper inputs, which will boost their competitiveness. And exporters of services stand to gain from extra revenue. Uh, so all we need is goodwill. So one of the big issues related to automation is this mostly kind of low-skilled workers are facing unemployment. But in COVID-19 times, it seems that these workers might stay unemployed and there's less opportunity to switch to another low-skilled job. Jason, how can we make sure that, you know, to include some of these workers that have been left behind in a, co a post-COVID world? First of all, the easiest tool we have is macroeconomic policy. Right now, that includes getting out the vaccines, which is the most powerful macroeconomic tool that we have. And it means ensuring that there is sufficient demand by you know, expanded unemployment insurance, checks to households, money for you know, whoever's gonna cut back their spending. So I think in the United States, we passed a huge stimulus relief bill for this year on top of the huge one for last year. I think we're gonna have a pretty low unemployment rate next year. I think we're gonna get a lot of the economy back to where it would have been absent the pandemic. There's other countries that can't afford to do as much as the United States has done, and they're in a more difficult position. There's countries who can afford to do it and have just um, chosen not to. And to some degree, you know, if you have less fiscal space, you can combine an upfront fiscal expansion with a simultaneous fiscal consolidation enacted for the future. So the first big tool is macro. Now, when the dust settles and the economy is back, 
I think that we still will have some businesses that didn't rehire everyone because they have figured out how to make do uh, and, and make more with less. That is a trickier problem to solve. That's why I emphasize the macro because we know that tool. Um, what the tool there is, it's education, it's training, it's expanding mobility, um, and you know, to some degree providing people some insurance against losing a job and getting a lower paid job if they're an older worker and in a harder place um, to be retrained. So all of those types of active labor market policies and social insurance can play a role, but it's a lot easier for them to work when you've gone as far as you can with your traditional monetary and fiscal policy tools. I think these are all really valid points. Beata, do you have anything to add to what Jason just laid out? Um, I, be, I agree with Jason that retraining is the key. I think that flex security as practiced in Denmark is a good solution. A very flexible labor market combined with lots of resources spent on retraining of workers. But here I really mean spending significant resources. In the context of Denmark, we are talking about almost 2% of GDP per capita, sorry, 2% of GDP spent on active labor market policies. Planning helps. In Nordic countries, firms inform the government in advance about their plans for layoffs. And that allows the government to pre prepare training programs so they are ready when needed. Now, in the EBRD regions, I'm worried about older workers. They have much weaker ICT skills than their counterparts in G7 countries. So unless they get help, their skills may become obsolete very soon. And um, that would be quite unfortunate because of demographic decline. Many of our countries need older workers to continue work longer. So does that mean we're going to see an emphasis then, Beata, perhaps first and then, and then Jason, on lifelong learning? You know, we've talked a lot about lifelong learning. We talked about it last time we met in the podcast. Uh, but also, you know, I remember going back to the Tony Blair government, for example, in the in the late 1990s, if we must have lifelong learning, it didn't really progress as fast as people thought. Is there going to be a renewed emphasis on this uh, idea if we have to reskill everybody? Absolutely. So I think we need a change in the mindset, just like we no longer expect to spend our whole career working for a single institution, we probably can no longer expect to remain in one profession throughout our career. And you know, there's no magic solution. It's about flexibility. It's about changed expectations. It's about lifelong learning. Jason? 100% agree with Beata. I, I don't have anything different to say. I think lifelong learning is really important. It's, it's challenging and hard. I mean, we know better how to set up a preschool program than to set up a lifelong um, learning program. But you can't give up on people. People need skills. They need to move into jobs. And it's all of the above. We need more jobs macro policy, and we need people better trained and equipped to succeed in those jobs. I hear huge amounts of talk, though, Jason, about this, but I don't see a lot of government action. You know, I don't see the majority of governments coming forward with properly planned lifelong learning schemes. 
yes, I agree. I think this is an area, look, I mean, this last year we had the house was burning down mm-hmm. and the, you needed to put out the fire. So I don't begrudge that policymakers in their initial wave of response, you know, when, when 15 million people lost their jobs in the United States, it wasn't because they lacked the skills and needed better training. So this didn't need to be the first part of the response, but as we come out of this and ask about in the United States, President Biden's calling it build back better. Um, building back better absolutely has to include much more of a focus on lifelong learning than we've had you know, just about anywhere for a while or ever. So according to the ILO, the International Labor, Labor Organization, we're experiencing one of the highest youth dropout rates from the job market. Um, Jason, you kind of in the same vein of what you were speaking about in terms of lifelong learning, do you think that it's in this vein that the government should focus on lifelong long learning and maybe even the private sector lifelong learning to prevent this new lost generation of youths who are dropping out from the job market? Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. The you know, causes of what's going on are complicated. The United States, where I know the data, a lot of it is people used to work while they're in college and now they're less likely to work while they're in college. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? You know, the answer to that isn't obvious, but you know, lifelong learning means lifelong. Um, and youth employment is something that, especially in a lot of European countries, is probably not quite as benign as just students being in college and not working while they're in college. And, and I think lifelong learning doesn't just mean in college, right? There are so many other programs online and, and, and other ways which you can learn. Um, so it doesn't even have to be the traditional way of learning, you know, that we're all kind of used to. Where does this leave also skilled women in the workplace, uh, Beata? You know, there's been a huge amount of pressure Uh, on women over the past year, having to combine a lot more uh, looking after families at home, uh, schools have been shut, together with trying to keep their place in in the career ladder. But but what happens for the future of women at work? Well, indeed, skilled women have been retreating from the labour market. Um, Job website data show that women have not been applying for jobs as frequently as men. They have not been updating their profiles. They've been taking a step back. And to a large extent, this is due to women having to step in and help with homeschooling of children. Often, um, this is a rational decision taking at the household level. If the husband earns more, it makes sense for the husband's career to be prioritized. But this means that the existence of a gender wage gap is creating a vicious cycle. If women earn less than men, then men's careers get prioritized, which further puts women behind. So I think what we need is women at the decision-making table during the next crisis. And I would bet that women would say that Closing schools should be treated as a measure of the last resort in any emergency situation. I would agree with you. Just the the toll I've seen it take on uh, on friend parents has been, and this is in the United Kingdom, has been um, pretty dramatic. So I couldn't agree more. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, this technological isolation. I don't know if you feel the same way, but you know, we're all living at home in our own echo chambers. And I feel like if we don't make a concerted effort, we're really not exposed to different points of view. We're, you know, the Facebook algorithm, if you will, keeps feeding us information that we want to hear. 
So given that the future of work is going to be some sort of hybrid situation, as you both have mentioned, do you think maybe part of the mission of the future workplace of the future workplace should be facilitating this type of diversity, this type of diversity of points of view? Jason, let's start with you. I think a diversity of points of view is incredibly important. The doing things remotely enables you to access more of it. Unfortunately, you know, a survey was just done of, at Harvard University and the vast, vast majority of our faculty were liberal and a tiny fraction, uh, what we call liberal in America, um, left, uh, a tiny fraction of our faculty were uh, conservative. And so if I was interacting with faculty in person um, I wouldn't be getting a whole lot more diversity than I'm getting on online. So the problem there is, you know, whatever it is that leads uh, faculty to be a monoculture. I should say in the economics department, there are probably where all of those conservatives that answered the poll um, were. So we have more diversity in our department than the university as a whole. So I think that's a viewpoint diversity. I think is a big problem. I think that remote could help solve that but it only helps solve it if you want to help solve it. And I think the reason we have a monoculture is that no one really minds it that much or nearly as much as they should. Right. And people are busy. And as you mentioned, there's just more to do now. And so also seeking out points of view, I imagine, is, is something, you know, even maybe possibly more difficult. Um, Beata, what do you think about what Jason just said? Do you agree? Well, I see diversity not as an end in itself but as a means to building a better and fairer society. And I think we need to pay particular attention to diversity in this age of technological progress because technology may actually accentuate existing biases, right? So think about using AI to screen CVs. Current biases that are embedded in the system not only can persist, but they may even become magnified. We also should think about how the move to hybrid work will affect women. Um, It's quite likely that women will be working remotely more frequently than men. Will we have to deal with the online FaceTime? Will women be disadvantaged because voices at the table will be louder and will be heard more than voices on the screen? The hybrid workplace creates a new host of challenges that we have to deal with. One uh, other interesting area, you know, I'd be interested to get your views, both of your views on this, is what happens in that balance between uh, the state and employers. And the reason I ask that is, you know, we've got things like the 2021 Edelman Barometer, which found a bankruptcy of trust, people no longer trusting governments or media, uh, and they put more trust, it would appear, in their employers. But at the same time, you know, we have seen uh, over the past year, the state having to become, in many cases, almost the employer of last resort. So people have had to turn to the state. Do you think that that will change the relationship for that triangular relationship between people, companies, uh, their employees, in other words, and the state, because the state has become has become the carer in a way to try to get them through difficult times. Beata? Well, I think the position of the state will strengthen, right? Academic research tells us that people who have come of age during economic crisis, during epidemics, have less faith in democracy and in free market. 
and they are also more supportive of the state playing a greater role in the economy. And moreover, over the last two decades, popular views have been shifting in favor of the state playing a greater role in the industry and in firms. Also in transition countries, in post-communist countries. So across countries, support for private ownership is much weaker than support for democracy. So I expect the state to strike back. I think that's, I think it's going to vary a lot from uh, state to state. And some states have a much longer tradition of greater distance from the economy. I think that this isn't going to change that. I think a lot of the pandemic led to now more than everism. If you were skeptical of government before, you have 80 problems with the way the government handled this, you can now point to to justify your skepticism. If you loved government before, you can point out all the ways in which government saved us and we would be dead uh, without them. And so this gives everyone ammunition to continue exactly the same arguments around the role of the state that they were having before. Fascinating. All right, let's let's try to sum up. Let's try to uh, bring our thoughts to a conclusion. We have been discussing what does the COVID-19 transformation mean for our work? Is the future of work already here? And what is the bigger threat to our future, COVID-19 or robots? That's been our topic for the past half hour or so. Uh, let's have some conclusions after that debate. Uh, Jason, what, what are your thoughts about where we stand on that dilemma? There is no debate that this has accelerated pre-existing trends. You can debate whether or not it has increased those trends as well. But what you also can't debate is even before the pandemic, we weren't doing enough to invest in education. We weren't doing enough to invest in lifelong learning. We weren't doing enough to ensure the job opportunities would continue to be there for everyone and that people could get paid well um, in those jobs. So whether the pandemic means we need to do more or whether it's just a good reminder that those of us calling for more before now have another argument to make, um, either way, um, it's the same result. We need to keep our eye on the ball to get our economies fully recovered over the next year, but start to think now about building back better, including building back better in the area of skills. Beata. The future is something we create today and every day. We can't stop technological and structural changes from taking place, but we can shape the way we respond to them so that we build a better society. Well, it's been quite the learning curve. Um, Jason and Beata, you've given us a lot to kind of think about. You know, I really, in general, I'm pretty much an optimist. Um, I, I do worry about the jobs that are not gonna return post pandemic for these low skilled workers, especially these jobs in these high density industries that have been replaced by automation or robotics that just will not come back. Um, and I think there needs to be more help for this just transition of these types of workers. But as I said, I'm mostly positive about what the future of work looks like post COVID. And listen, I think there are lots of advantages from this hybrid work, especially you know, flexibility for employees, you know, working parents, as we've already mentioned. But from an employer perspective, Beata, you touched on a point that I think really drove it home to me. The talent pool just got a lot bigger. 
you know, they can tap into workers from these cities that are not superstar cities that people need to be in um, for various reasons. So I think that's really positive from an employer point of view. But I think there are also some lots, lots of opportunities for policymakers, as Jason mentioned, lifelong learning, if it didn't hit you upside the head this needs to be focused on, it should now, but also support um, for businesses, uh, you know, and governments to expand and enhance the digital infrastructure. I think that's also really important. And you've seen uh, the gap in, in what that's caused in some of our countries as well. So I think those are my conclusions. I generally stay an optimist. I think that this COVID-19 at the end of the day has actually, will do a lot for the worker, I think in a positive way, um, looking back. Your optimism does you proud. I mean, I think listening to the debate, you know, I um, I definitely think 18 months, which is probably about the time before most people go back to their offices, that they will have been remote working in many, many economies, for example, uh, you know, is long enough to ingrain new habits and not just amongst people who work in offices, but actually their bosses too, the people making investment decisions. Uh, so, so I think 18 months is a, you know, a length of time, which does mean that change has come. Uh, and we won't be going back. And not to mention the fact that many companies have invested very heavily in technology over the past 18 months in order to be able to keep delivering. They are want to going to get they want they want to return on investment. I mean, I think there's no doubt about that. So that leap is is here to stay. The one question I have in my mind is when things return to a form of normality, uh, which hopefully with vaccinations and, and other you know, progress, medical progress, they're going to do. People will become a bit complacent, I suspect, uh, and some of the speed of change will slow down because they'll think, well, things are relatively back to where they were. They won't be, but that's what it will look like to many people. And that complacency, I think, will put a bit of a break on change, but it's only a break. I think, you know, some of these changes are irreversible and we should be absolutely clear on that. Um, a big thank you to Jason Beata. It's been great, very interesting conversation. Uh, you've been listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes, email us at uh, dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Uh, my name is Jonathan Charles, together with Kerry, Kerry Law. We've been uh, really fascinated to hear this conversation and we're really looking forward to hearing what you think about this discussion. So get in touch with us. Stay safe. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.